I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, listener, and welcome to Jumpers for Goalposts. Now, before we start today's pod, I'd just like to say thank you to everybody who's gotten in touch so far with your football stories and your football stats. On that note, we would like you to contribute to the pod with your football stories and memories the matches you've been to or watched and would like covered. And of course, your football stats like Brian Dean scoring seven goals and 18 appearances on his year abroad in Benfica. Love that. So contact us by email at jumperspodcast at gmail.com. That's jumperspodcast at gmail.com. On Facebook, just search for at jumperspodcast. And on Twitter, our handle is at jumpersforgoal and the number four. That's jumpers for F-O-R, goal followed by the number four. Now, on to today. We are travelling back to a time when Denzel Washington won a Best Actor Oscar for Training Day. Andre Agassi won a 700th career tennis match against a young Roger Federer. And the game, Triple H, beat Chris Jericho for the undisputed WWF title at WrestleMania 18. That's right, we're going back to March 2002. We have our own WrestleMania going on between Sheffield United and West Brom in the Battle of Bramall Lane. Mush the Matchman is live from Upton Park and the lads fight it out for Shakira in our Balls Against the Wall quiz. What are we waiting for? Let's get going. Block to Beckham. Beckham clips it into the box. Finish Troy. Touch blocking. Smash! Manchester United double their advantage. Rude Van Nistelrooy celebrates at the theatre of dreams while the Sunderland players, they are rolling around in the mud as their team fall behind. Hello, listener, and welcome to Jumpers for Goalposts. I'd like to introduce you to two men who would slot in perfectly to a back four that also included Jamie Carragher and Sammy Hippia. They love nothing better to do on a Saturday night in the house than to stick on a retro football jersey and two-foot lunge a family member as they pass them in the hallway. It's Daniel McIntyre and Connor Elliott, also known as Dan, and Mush, the matchman. Lads, how are we? The best, Steve. Good. Very good, Stephen. Thank you. Good stuff. So the lads love nothing more than to stick on a retro football jersey, and that's what we're going to do every week on the pod. Mush is going to wear a home jersey. Dan is going to wear uh, an away jersey. Mush, what have you got for us today? Yes, Steve. I am wearing the home kit of Blackburn Rovers from 0102. A very iconic half and half strip with the light blue and the white. The sleeves corresponding. One sleeve will be blue, one sleeve will be white. A lovely round neck which had a blue trim. Sponsored by the Italian giants Kappa. Sponsored by Time Company who were suppliers of computer software. Um, they won the League Cup in this year, which was actually sponsored, which was the Worthington Cup back then. Iconic goals in this kit. Two gay, the Turkish assassin, loved a good 20-yard driver from outside the box. Also iconic names that were this. Drunken Damien Duff, Henningberg, the off-the-line wizard, the aging Mark Hughes, Flitcroft, Hignett, David Dunn, Lucas Neal, and even loves a punt, Keith Gillespie. So my kit is the Blackburn Rovers kit from 0102, and it rings out in my mind because goal King Cole, Andy Cole, scored the winning goal in the Worthington Cup final wearing this. Excellent. What a fine first shirt you're wearing there, Mush. Dan, you look like you've got a lovely little number on there too. What have you got for us? Yes, Stephen, today I am wearing the away 2001-2002 Arsenal strip, the gold away strip with a beautiful navy collar for those men who like sticking their collars up in a maverick fashion. It's also sponsored by Nike, who make the kits, have been making the kits for Arsenal since 1995 and made some beautiful kits for the Gunners. And the shirt sponsor is Sega. 
We all remember a good Sega Mega Drive Master System and this match, the home kit, which was sponsored by Dreamcast. Tony Adams was probably wondering what Sega and Dreamcast were, but he wore it anyway. Some wonderful players wore this kit. Thierry Henry, Robert Perez, who lobbed Jamaica in it. Patrick Vieira, who scored a winner at Anfield. Another Frenchman, Sylvain Wiltord, who, of course, clinches Arsenal the title by scoring his goal at Old Trafford and celebrating with Keanu, who jumps over his head. But also some retro gunners wore it. Lee Dixon, Martin Keown, Raimondo Parler. A beautiful away kit and certainly um, a firm reminder of the season 2001-2002. A lot of flair players and hard nuts there, Dan. Are you a long sleeve or a short sleeve with gloves, man? I am a short sleeve only man. Uh, I don't like short sleeve with gloves. I feel if you want to wear a short sleeve with gloves, you have to wear a long sleeve. Great stuff. So, we've had the lads look at the best and worst bits of transfer business of the 0102 season. This is Transfer Business. Thank you, Stephen. May five best bits of transfer business from the summer 2001-2002. Starting with number five is French winger Lauren Robert who was signed by Newcastle from Paris Saint-Germain for £9.5 million. He was a magnificent player for Newcastle, a scorer of fantastic goals, free kicks, thunderous strikes from outside the box. He gave Newcastle that little bit of magic that they lost and also a great deliverer of, of crosses into the box for Shearer with Nobby Solano on the other side and really, really helped get Newcastle and Bobby Robson's team Back into the European and Champions League mix, and he would do very, very well for them for um, for a fair few seasons before moving on. So Lauren Robert in at number five. In at number four is probably one of the biggest surprises of the window is uh, Fulham signing Edwin van der Sar from Juventus <laughs> for seven million pounds. Wow. I remember even being a young teenager back then, wondering how it was done. Because he was playing for Juventus, he was their number one. Juventus would sign Luigi Buffon that summer, so van der Sar had to move on. But even then, you're thinking, you know, one of the Milans, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Manchester United, someone's going to buy Edwin. And it was Fulham, newly promoted Fulham, managed to convince van der Sar to sign for them. And he did really well for Fulham before moving on to Manchester United. In at number three, and the top three brilliant footballers, world-class players, is Sol Campbell which was the biggest shock, the biggest shock of the window, moving from Tottenham Hotspur to North London Rivals Arsenal for free. Tottenham, oh. Tottenham didn't even get any coin for Sol Campbell. They lost their captain, their leader, their best player to their biggest rivals. If you were a Tottenham fan at this time, you must have been wondering what was going on. It would have been... Very bleak. I know that uh, peppered Sol Campbell with a lot of hatred, but at the end of the day, it really was did separate the two clubs into who who was bigger at the time. You know, Arsenal were streets ahead of Tottenham, and Sol Campbell, very very brave move. He must have had something on Alan Sugar, surely. He he must have because Sugar, <laughs> I don't think said too much about it. <laughs> he didn't get too much criticism from Tottenham board members. So, yeah. Uh, unbelievable. I, I think maybe they just they knew he was leaving and maybe didn't think he would go to Arsenal because obviously, you know, the Bosman rules in place, he, he can go wherever he wants. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, Sol Campbell in at number three. In at number two, Manchester United had to wait a year for this man and it's Ruud van Nistelrooy Rude. who moved from PSV Eidenhoven to Manchester United for £19 million. A world-class striker who got off, got off the mark straight away and would bang goals in for five seasons for Manchester United, helping them win a title and the, the other domestic trophies. Uh, a greedy player in the right way, you know, just wanted to score goals. And if he didn't score, he wasn't happy. And I don't see anything wrong with that. He was a cross between so many players and he was a lot better a footballer than what people remembered. He was capable of running with the ball, dribbling with the ball, beating men. So, no, Ruud van Nistelrooy was a world-class player. And at number one, went for longevity for me, best bit of business of the 0102. And it's Frank Lampard, who moved from West Ham United to Chelsea for £11 million. Pounds. Super at Frank. The time, super Super Frank. Out. At the time, this bit of business probably would have went under the radar. You know, I'm sure Chelsea were happy enough to get another player in 
West Ham fans weren't particularly big supporters of Lampard. Um, so I don't think they were too sad to see him leave. They thought he was a bit um, of a daddy's boy, right? They did, they did, yeah. Uh, wrongly, as it turns out, because Chelsea have bought a world-class midfielder, the ultimate professional in terms of he had to work hard on himself to improve himself. He didn't have the natural talent that maybe a, a Gerard or a Scholes had. And you just look at Lampard's career at Chelsea. Brilliant, brilliant bit of business. And that completes May 2001-2002 window. Fine, five-a-side team you've got there, Dan. Can you top that with the uh, worst bits of business? Uh, I'll try my best, Steve. A couple of bits of not-so-good business. Uh, Seth Johnson to Leeds United from Derby County for £10 million. Leeds, uh, this were on the spending money trail, which may have led to their decline in the northeast. Yes, he had his injury problems, but £10 million for Seth Johnson, not for me. Um, also, Richard Wright, £8 million from Itch Down. He was given his chance on his debut where he kept a clean sheet. But then when Big D of Seaman was growing a handlebar tash and a long set of locks, he then punched a ball into the net and it just never worked out and he was away to Everton the next season. Bosco Balaban for Aston Villa, £7 million. He had eight appearances in two seasons and zero goals. That tells the story. Steve Morlett to Fulham. For £15.8 million, he only notched 11 goals in 54 appearances. There was a bit of controversy with this transfer, as supposedly Jean Diganat, the toothpick-wearing Frenchman, uh, he was sacked by Mohamed Al-Fayed and he accused Tigana of orchestrating an obscure transfer fee because he used to be his agent. This was what? later thrown out of... Yes, this was later thrown out of court. But yes, there was a conspiracy that Jean Tegenat was Marlette's agent back in the day and he also bumped up the price because Fulham had just got promoted and bumped up the price so he could take a cut of it. Tegenat was sacked within the first season anyway, so didn't work out for him there. And my number one bit of worst transfer business is Juan Sebastian Verón. An absolute player um, who actually got off to a very good start. United he got the player of the month in September. He was starting to fit in. Was very impressive in Europe, but it just never worked out for him. A strange bit of business too, because United had probably the best midfield in England at the time. Did it really need an extra addition? Where was he to fit in? And especially with Finisteroy, uh, he was then shipped out to Chelsea um, for 15 million after. But considering what he'd all he'd done in Serie A, and at the time it was the most expensive English transfer, I'm sorry, Juan Saba. But you're number one on my worst bit of transfer business for 01, 02. Great stuff there, Mush and Dan, with the best and the worst bits of transfer business of the 0102 season. I'd love to pit those two five-a-side teams against each other. I'm sure we all know who would win. Seth Johnson with an 89th-minute winner after Sol Campbell dragged him down for a penalty. Ruud van Nistelrooy goes absolutely crazy, even though he scored 36 goals during the game. We will be back with the infamous Battle of Bramall Lane, but first, here's a lovely goal by our best bit of business player, Frank... Super gouge by Super Frank Lampard. Corner for Chelsea. Maluda whips it in. Oh, Ivanovic gets there. John's hurry. Back out to Super Frank. Super Frank. Super shot goal. And it's a goal for Chelsea. And Frank Lampard with his 13th deflection of the season in front of the shed end. Not like him to pop up with a deflected goal. Oh, and John Terry, always reliable, loves wearing that kit, even on presentation day when he's not supposed to be there. Chelsea lead, Tony Pulis fuming in his tracksuit. So today we're going back to March 2002. It's almost 19 years ago, which seems absolutely crazy. And we can't go back to that month without talking about the infamous Battle of Bramall Lane. No, this is not a Game of Thrones episode, listener. This is an actual game of football that took place between Sheffield United and West Bromwich Albion. It's a crazy one. We have sendings off, some of the worst tackles you will ever see, goals, touchline antics, conspiracy theories, a heavy police involvement. Dan, what went down at the Battle of Bramall Lane? The Battle of Bramall Lane, Stephen, thank you. Unbelievable football match in the worst possible 
way imaginable. Um, you know, two teams who, you know, weren't great rivals. There was nothing on the line here. Um, West Brom were doing very, very well in Division One, going and would go on to get get promoted at the end of this season. Warnock's build trying to build something at Sheffield United. They have a very physical reputation, but the game starts. It's fine. Nothing going on in the game at all. Then. In the ninth minute, it all starts to fall apart. Uh, Scott Dobie's running through on goal, and Simon Tracy, the Sheffield United goalkeeper, comes comes flying out. Handball. I personally think he's unlucky, and maybe that's where it starts to wrangle with Sheffield United players. He gets a he gets a straight red. I think if you when you look at it, it, it is harsh. Um, but anyway, the red's given. Warnock then he sacrifices. Commentary legend Peter Unlove and one of his front two to bring on his sub keeper Vilgo Davo. I don't know if he'll ever come up again, but there he is. <laughs> he co- he comes on for Peter Unlove. Obviously, Peter Unlove understands one of the front two is going to get sacrificed, and you know it, it's one of those things that happens when a goalkeeper gets sent off. Nothing comes from the free kick. Then in eighteen minutes, Scott Dobie, um, another bit of a journeyman striker. Lovely, lovely finish. And the put West Brom won the up. Even then, nothing much is happening the rest of the half. It's a bit of a battle, a bit of a slog. Sheffield United are digging in, trying to get back into the game with 10 men. West Brom, you know, a little bit more space, but nothing much changes in the first half. 1-0 at half time. Midway through the second half, Derek McInnes puts uh, West Brom at Jalbian 2-0 up with an absolute peach of a goal from outside the area into the sort of middle top region of the net, giving uh, Vilgo Davo, I've mentioned him again, no hope. That's on 63 minutes. Now, this is where it all goes wrong. Neil Warnock's reaction to going 2-0 down is to make a double substitution. He brings on George Santos and Patrick Sufo, two hard-hitting men, in the 64th minute. In the 65th minute of the match, there is a brawl. Started by George Santos, who two-foot lunges Andy Johnson for no good reason, you would think, if you didn't know the background between the two players. There's history. There's history. Earlier on in that season, Andy Johnson, who was then playing for Nottingham Forest, breaks George Santos's cheekbone with an elbow. George Santos has not forgotten about this. All right, so he's lunged in on Andy Johnson. First chance he's gotten. He's got a straight red card. From there, a brawl emerges. Within that brawl, Patrick Sufo elbows Derek McInnes, who's just scored to put West Brom 2-0 up. He's opened him up. Stitches needed. Okay, so two straight reds for Sheffield United. This day is 2-0 down, 65 minutes on the clock. And there's only one thing going through Neil Warnock's <laughs> mind here. Let's get this game abandoned. <laughs> this is where the conspiracy starts, right? <laughs> this is where the conspiracy starts, okay? Uh, so if they lose, and Jeff Stelling mentions it on Sky Sports News, if Sheffield United lose another two players through sevens <laughs> off or injuries because all subs are made, the game could be abandoned. He, Jeff then says rather tongue-in-cheek, but I don't think that's going through Neil Warnock's mind. <laughs> we have incidents with Michael Brown trying to get sent off through lunges and we all know, remember Michael Brown yeah. is capable of, of such challenges. Keith Curl, centre-back, um, former England international Manchester City star, also trying to get sent off. And then two players come off injured. And from then, they're trying to get the game abandoned. Um, in between that, Scott Dobie has scored again. Probably a goal not too many people remember to put West Brom three up. So with about eight minutes to go then, the two players for Sheffield United get down injured. Michael Brown's one of them. Apparently has a groin, but yet he was running about in the second half, not a bother to him. And then the game is abandoned with a few minutes to go. Huge police presence because of the fear of the fans rating as well. The aftermath of the match is Gary Megson, which I think is a brilliant piece of management and he, he should be admired for it. Once West Brom, after the scuffle, he gets messages on to his West Brom players and says, if any of you get sent off in this game, you're getting fined two weeks' wages. Don't care what the reasons are. Because that takes off retaliation, stops the club from getting fined, stops you from getting suspended. So I thought that was a brilliant piece of management. Neil Warnock, after the game, you would swear they've just had a very quiet 1-1 draw. He's so mellow, he, isn't he? It's he's very creepy. mellow, uh, very <laughs> defensive, show no regret or remorse about what his, his players' actions and denied any accusations of trying to get the game abandoned when anyone who was involved and around the dugouts that day of later came out and said, no, Neil Warnock was trying to get, get the game abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> so the game finishes, West Brom 3, Sheffield United nil. After the game, six match bans for Sufo and Santos. 
Keith Girl gets a two-game ban for his violent actions. And most importantly, West Brom get the three points, despite Sheffield United trying to get the game abandoned. Superb. What a battle. Well, lots to digest there, lads. Um, I mean, first of all, I think we, we should say that the game did finish 3-0 to West Brom and that that actually did upstand and that they did get the three points. Neil Warnock trying to get the match replayed didn't work out. I suppose the question is, why is he trying to get the game replayed when they are 12th and are nowhere near the playoff places? What do we think? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, I'm not surprised by Warnock's actions. Um, he lives and dies by the sword and uh, <laughs> the um, allegations of trying to get the game deliberately called off. I, I well believe that way, as you say, Steve, when Sheppard Knight didn't really have much to play for, but I just don't think he wanted Max and getting one over him, on him, you know. Warnock's a type of fella, you know. I don't think he has many mates and I don't think he's too bothered by that. He very nicely put it himself at the end of the interview uh, when asked, will, will he be speaking to Gary Megson? He said, no, nah, I don't think we'll be going for a drink together after the game, but then not too many people do come for a drink with me. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, there is some characters actually uh, who would later on go on to have established careers in management and football that took place in this game. One of those was Darren Moore. Who, yes, a fine man, big Dormer, a fine man, and and Gary Magson uh, touches on him after the game. You know that he was one of the players that he got the message to about keep your heads. If any of you get sent off, you know I'm going to fine you two weeks' wages. So Dormer was a, a leader in that West Brom changing room for for a number of years. A terrific pro would go, obviously go on to play Premiership football and um, manage West Brom as well. So, no, uh, a few other characters as well, particularly on the Sheffield United side. They had a young, young Phil Jagielka playing in midfield that day. Still um, going, still going, um, and uh, obviously with Sheffield United, uh, Keith Curl. You know, a lot of clubs in in, in his day, um, like the Derby, played for Sheffield United. Um, before and was with Manchester City too and, and Michael Brown as well who um, you know seemed to enjoy rubbing opposition up the wrong way and, and opposing fans as well didn't seem to bother him so he, he I think he would have been one of uh, Neil Warnock's leaders in the, in the dressing room Yeah it's worth saying as well that this was the first uh, and only match since that was abandoned in the entire football league pyramid um, because a team could not field more than yeah. six players. Unbelievable stuff. Mad, mad. Now it's time for a new segment on the podcast where Mush takes a look at those insane, sometimes of unsound mind, enthusiastic and passionate personalities in the football world. It's Mush's Madman. He's mad as he is. No, actually, he's all right. The madman of the week, Steve. Well, my first madman of the week is none other than Neil Warnock. Yes, a winger in his playing days, but an absolute wingnut as a manager. A man that probably didn't have many friends, but I don't think he was bothered at all by this. I definitely think he, he relaxed by bellowing at fourth officials. A great managerial career, uh, 1,600 games, eight promotions, four of them promoted from the Championship to the Premier League, which is currently a record at the moment. He's a man that, he loved the F word, and a quote here is, you got to F and die if you want three points. Quite fitting for him. Um, he was a superstitious man. He said that his side, if they wore Black shorts, they would play better in it. And also, the razor that he'd used on the morning of a match day, if his team had won, he would continue to use that razor. His dress code is a tire. He, he, he wore boots. He wore the waterproof trousers. He the top. You'd swear he was a sub ready to come on. He lived and breathed football. He didn't like injured players in the changing room, and he told them to get out. I think he started every day with a row. That was his wake-up call. Despite 
not many probably opposing uh, clubs liking him. He was a family man um, and he loved the country and he loved his tractors. A couple of quotes of Neil Warnock's. I was going to call him a sewer rat, but not maybe insulting sewer rats. He said that about El Hajjouf. He said this to Phil Thompson. You can F off, Pinocchio, and get back in your cupboard. <laughs> he said this about he, he said this about a fellow manager. I wouldn't pain him if he was on fire. And also big Ron Atkinson referred to him as a nutter. <laughs> so my madman for this week is Neil Warnock. Do you know what I loved about that the most? Is that you talked yeah. about him in the past tense the whole way through, so it sounded like he was dead. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to reassure everyone that Neil Warnock is alive and well and managing Middlesbrough at the moment. Best wishes to Neil from everyone at the pod. Don't touch the pack. We'll be right back after this very, very important message. Um... What goes through your mind? You don't know. Is it me? Or the, you know, is it payback time for me over the years? They might think you get him out of the way. I don't honestly don't know. But um, you know, the best world, best league in the world, and probably the worst officials at the minute. I don't know what Mike Riley does with the alignment, because if you can't see that clearly, there's something wrong with you, really. And he'll probably get another game next week, and probably say sorry to me after the game. It, they don't understand what's at stake. You know, Clive White, who was the PFA guy here, you know, he, uh, he's saying about, you know, he's too too passionate and all. Come on, you know, what's at stake? This is the game of football in England's Premier League. And, and when you see things like that, it does get you passionate. That's what we're in the bloody game for. You know, it shouldn't make mistakes like that at this level. You know, wh- why am I working at 70 years of age to see things like that? OK, so our next game to cover is from the English Premier League. It is Bolton versus Derby, a relegation battle already. And Mush, I believe you have a special correspondent lined up for us. Yes, Steve, I do. Um, a good pal of mine. Um, he, he's very enthusiastic. He's a top journal at the moment. He lives and loves the game. It's my buddy, Chip. Over to you, Chip. Hey, guys. Chip here. I'm super stoked to be invited on the pod. Thanks for having me, man. This week, I had the privilege to check out the England Premier League conference game between the Bolton Wanderers and the Kentucky Derby. I'll just run through the rosters. The Wanderers started with goalie Juicy Jessica Lennon, a defense of Worst, Whitlow, Bergson, Charlton, and then Gotti. The offense included Tofting, Gardner, ugh, and one of my favorites, Yuri Jerk Kiev. That left the top two shooters with Ricketts and Wallace. For Kentucky Derby, they lined up with goalie Andy Oaks. The defense was Rickett, Barton, Savagno, Boerteen, and Danny Hickeybottom. The offense featured O'Neill, Bobby Lee, and Georgie Kinky Lazzy. Oh, and Malcolm Crispy and Fabi Ravinelli were the biggest threat for a field goal. This one was tight from the start. Neither franchise wanted to lose and potentially be playing in the minor leagues next fall. As the first quarter progressed, Kentucky Derby started to run the best plays. Defender Chris Riggett went close before Fabi Ravinelli hit the bar after Zavagno's fine run and cross down the left. But when the goal did arrive, it was a wrapped up gift from the Wonders Paul Worst. The franchise veteran's attempt at putting his head on the ball, the plate of the goalie fell short, and the lively Crispy pounced like a panther, firing the soccer ball past Juicy Jessica Lynn. The halftime show couldn't come quick enough for the Wonders. However, the start of the second quarter was much better for the lame Wonders. The Jamaican bobsleigh winger Gardner provided the equalization in amazing style. He fired a ferocious half volley into the top corner for 25 yards. The Wonders were lifted by that moment of inspiration, but Kentucky Derby held firm, and the offense got them back in front eight minutes later. A pinpoint cross from the left managed to find Fabi Revy 
and the Italian Silver Fox headed the soccer ball home for his first goal in 10 games. The Wonders were broken, man. Huh, they knew they sucked. Kentucky didn't care one bit. They pressed on. Lightning McQueen quick, Lee Morris was tackled to the ground by Juicy the goalie. The referee David Elray called illegal. Juicy was showing the red flag and Hickey Bottom kept his cool to seal the two points from a penalty kick with just five remaining on the clock. It finished the Bolton Wonders one, Kentucky Derby three. After the game, the Wonders coach Sam Allardyke said, this is my worst nightmare of the campaign. I'm not surprised he's having nightmares. They absolutely sucked. I'm chipped on Levy. Back to you in the studio, Simon. Uh, Mush, can I just ask, where exactly did you meet Chip? Um, I met Chip. Uh, I was in the White Star Bar one night, and there was a sports quiz, and it was uh, a four-man per team, and we were short one. And this boy was he was on the foosball table, and he was uh, he was on fire. I think he'd won nine in a row. He joined our team that night, and he he uh, excuse the pun, but he chipped in with a few answers. So uh, that's how I met him. I met him in the White Star Bar while he was playing foosball. So I asked him to join our quiz. And we we finished second in the quiz. That's that's how I met Chip. Oh, brilliant. What a man. Great stuff, Mush. Lads, this was a relegation battle in the middle of March. And surprisingly, Derby won this game. Bolton were favourites. Dan, few characters in this Derby lineup. What did you Superb. think of the, of the starting eleven? Oh, very interesting. Um, Robin Ellie obviously stands out straight away. Um, a little bit of another one of those, how did Derby get Ravenelli? back from Syria, you know, to, to play for them. And uh, Malcolm Christie, who was a wee poacher, you know, he was quite good for Derby County. He stood out for me. So the front two on the other side of it was Georgie Kinkladze, who had been previously with Manchester City. You know, another sort of retro Premier League player that they pulled in. Um, John Gregory had been recently put in charge of Derby, replacing Jim Smith as well, and, and, and had brought in a bit of experience. Rob Lee, you know, shrewd bit of business for, for from Newcastle and Warren Barton as well to try and, try and, sort of, try and help keep them up, basically, you know, try and get a, a couple of winners in there and a bit of experience. So, uh, yeah, definitely a few classic players in, in that lineup, and um, on the day, fully deserved their win. Do you think, because obviously Derby ended up going down with this side, mm. um, was it a case of maybe some of these lads maybe didn't have the legs for it anymore? Was it one season too many for the likes of Rob Lee, Kinkladze? I think so. I think with Rob Lee, he just wanted to get game time and, and left Newcastle. He was still a very good player, but would have needed a lot more legs around him. And I don't think they had much of, of that physical power in the, in the engine room, middle of the park, you know. Um, and Ravenelli, just, he just didn't get the goals, you know. Uh, Christie was their top scorer. Um, probably no surprise, the Derby County fans, that Christie was, but they would have been expecting more from Ravenelli. And as well... These smaller clubs, they just run out of gas in the Premier League. If you can't keep recruiting the players or bringing players through, you're going to be in trouble. And and they did really well to stay up the season previous, getting a, a win against Manchester United to help keep them up. And City ended up going down. So they probably hung on a year or two more than people would have thought after initially doing really, really well in the three seasons um, in the late 90s. But I think just some clubs run out of steam and it comes around, back around again full circle. If you can't get the young players through the academy or your recruitment goes away, you're going to be in trouble. And I think that's what happened to them. A bad day at the office for Big Sam here, Mush. What happened? Surprising, especially uh, Bolton at home under Big Sam. Always a difficult place to go. Uh, I think actually when Bolton... They did come up. They obviously surprised a few people. I just thought Derby were the better team that day. Probably a wee bit more clinical in the final third. On the day, Bolton deserved to lose, but the end result for them would have been staying up. Now it's the part of the podcast where Dan falls in love with those unorthodox, independent-minded footballers. It's Dan's Maverick of the Week.
Okay, this week's Maverick of the Week is the one and only Yuri Yorkiev, who played in the Premier League for both Bolton and Blackburn Rovers, but will be more remembered for his time at Bolton. But I want to touch on him before Bolton and how he got there. Um, a wonderful career, a wonderful player, a playmaker, a scorer and maker of goals, could play off the right or left, um, could play as a front man, but most notably remembered for his days in and around the middle of the park, um, linking things together and creating goals. A World Cup winner in 1998, a European Championship winner in 2000, a UEFA Cup winner in 1998 with a fantastic Inter Milan team, just missing out in Serie A that year. Started his career with Chernobyl, moved on to Strasbourg, played for Monaco, PSG. Not too many players have done that. Moved then from PSG to Inter Milan, where he had a couple of great seasons. Um, in 1997, finished as a runner-up in the UEFA Cup, winning it the year later, supplying Arnain and Zamorano uh, in a brilliant uh, 3-4-1-2 system that uh, Inter played that year with your KF in the free role. Moved on then to Kaiserslautern in Germany. So a very well-rounded and well-educated player. Very intelligent man as well. Um, from Kaiserslautern, he, Big Sam shocks shocks the world by bringing him to Bolton Wanderers. How he ended up there, we don't know. Maybe Big Sam will be investigated further down the line for dodgy transfer deals. We don't know any of this yet in 2002, but just putting that out there. <laughs> uh, does really, really well for Bolton, and he's joined by... A real array of European greats, Herrero, Campo, JJ Acacia, Mario Jardel, Jan Akopoulos, Dory Speed moves the Bolton as well. So Big Sam, you know, had a talent for attracting those experienced players. But it all, York Cave was the first one for me. He was there just before JJ Acacia and was a fantastic player. Three seasons with Bolton, surprisingly then moved on to Blackburn, where he only made three appearances, just couldn't break into Mark Hughes' team, which makes sense to me because of the type of team that Mark Hughes had at Blackburn. It it, it, it confuses me because it doesn't suit York Cave's style of play, whereas Bolton, you know, Big Sam accommodated him, you know, accommodated a little bit, bit more quality, and Hughes already had too gay at Blackburn so we didn't probably didn't need your cave from there he moved to America and had a great relationship with uh, the New York Red Bulls he would uh, open up his own um, sports foundation in New York City as well and that's still running to this day as I touched on earlier on a very very intelligent man was president of Leon as well for a spell and um, just to touch again on, on his um, France career you know was part of that you know, the, the double winning international team that won back-to-back tournaments, you know, what a team that was. And he was really afforded the time to develop in that team as well. France had taken the, de- the decision in Euro 96 to go with York KF and Zidane and leave Ginola and Cantona out of the squad completely um, and, and back these players. And it really paid off for them. And York KF was a huge, huge part of that, not only on the pitch, but within that squad, within that changing room, with Desai, with um, Blanc, Zidane, um, Barthez, you know, they were the Deschamps, they were the leaders of that squad, Lillian Churam as well. And I admire players who are well-travelled and have moved across different countries. Um, nowadays, Shabby Alonso always springs to mind, you know, playing the biggest clubs in, in England, Spain, Germany, and York Cave was one of those players. Played in England, played in France, played in Italy, played in Germany, played in America. Um, and not only played there, but played really, really well there. Left an impact at every club that he played for. So, Yuri York Cave is my maverick of, of the week, and I'm a huge fan after learning more about him. And I'm sure our listeners will be as well. He's a player worth reading about and looking up, and a scorer of great goals. And talking about great goals, here is one of Yuri Jorkaev's finest for Bolton in the Premier League against Blackburn. A lovely, cheeky lob. Bolton with a big lumpy ball up over the top. Oh, it's turned out to be a cracking through ball. It's Jorkaev. He's inside the box. Oh, he's lobbed Brad Friedel from an acute angle, which Stephen Hendry would have been proud of. Yuri Jorkaev. What a beautiful goal from a beautiful man. How the hell did Big Sam sign up for Bolton Wanderers? But what about the assist? A big, lumpy direct ball. Something straight out of Big Sam's textbook. 
What a beautiful goal. Chalk AF, ladies and gentlemen. So now it's time for our Euro match of the week with Mush the Matchman. We are travelling all the way to Milan for this one in Syria. It's the San Siro game between Inter Milan and Roma, which took place on the 24th of March, 2002. Mush, what went down between Inter and Roma? Yes, Steve, uh, what a game between two Italian giants um, in one of the best leagues at the time in Syria. Uh, Inter and Roma, of course, were involved in a three-team affair for the title, along with Juventus. Just to mention also that newly promoted Kiev were top after six weeks and Roy Hodgson, the master of the Turtle Doves, he was sacked by Udinese in December. Inter, they started off with Big Toldo in the bags, Zanetti, the legend at a right back, Cordoba and Matarazzi, centre half pairing, Serena at left back, Dalmat in midfield with De Baggio and a Christian Zanetti was seared off on the left. And Rokoba and big Christian Vieri up top. Roma had Antonioli in goals, Mucci Panucci at right back, the brick wall Walter Samuel, Zabina and Cafu. They then in midfield had Emerson and Tomasi and a front four of Candela, Totti, Del Vecchio and Montella. A feisty game which seen seven yellows and two red cards. Um, Inter Milan as well too had no Ronaldo or Nain injured, was not in the squad, but it was Rakoba stole the show that day, or as he liked to be referred to by the Inter Milan faithful as Chino. His Fleur and Maisie feet showed after two minutes as he latched onto a three ball and rounded um, Antonioli 1-0. Um, this lead was then doubled by big Christian Vieri or known as the Inter Milan faithful as Bobo. Um, he outmuscled the brick wall, that is Walter Samuel, and he darted in and spun away from Samuel. Despite Samuel looking to rip the shirt clean off him, he managed to stop and head the ball down into the corner and make it 2-0 after a beautiful cross from Rakoba. Totti gave Roma hope in the second half as he sparked the contest into life with a beautiful finish. But Rakoba wrapped it up late on with an absolute wand of a free kick with his left peg, curling it into the top corner to finish out 3-1. Just a note as well too, Roma on the bench had Gabriel Batistuta and he was an unused sub. How can you not bring on one of the best goal scorers in European football? But it finished here, Inter Milan 3, Roma 1 in the Italian uh, title race. So intriguing stuff. Great stuff, Mush. Um, so many fine games in Syria around this time. And obviously with the three teams fighting for the title, it's hard to, to pick a game to cover. But um, so many stars on show here. In a future pod, we're going to cover the Italian title race for that season. So we won't have any spoilers here now. But what I would like to ask you, lads, is with all the stars on show here, is there any player from those two 11s who you would have liked to have seen in the Premier League to potentially have seen more of them as a player? Dan, over to you Ooh, first. I would have loved to have seen Totty in the Premier League. He would have been he would have been brilliant in the Premier League, certainly at that time because of the way teams play with the front twos. You had your target man and then you had your man free. So like Burkamp and Henri, Shearer and Bellamy. Scholes and Vinicius Roy, you know, so there was always a player that linked the midfield, and I think uh, I think Totty would have been fantastic. Where do you um, think he would have fitted in? Old Salford would have suited him down to the ground. I think linking up with Vinicius Roy. I think what United that year signing Veron, maybe they should have went for another striker instead, and went all out for the likes of a Totty. Also, think he would have suited Chelsea because um, Gianfranco Zola was just near in the end. And maybe he could have replaced, took on the mantle at Chelsea. Um, but a player of Totty's quality, you make room for him, not the other yeah. way around. So um, he would have fitted into any of those teams. It was never going to happen, though, was it? He was just Roma through and through. Oh, he, he would never. <laughs> I think, you know, similar to Del Piero, if Roma would have ever gotten bothered and would have had to go down to Serie B or Serie C and so on, he, he would have went down with them. The, yeah. the, the man was just... 
you know, he turned down so many clubs over the years. He was um, Roma through and through and a real one club man and a, a true legend of the game. Much the same question to you. Is there anyone stands out there that you would have liked to have seen a match of the day every week? Um, well, Totti was one of the names that sprung into me here, but I'm going to go for Clarence Seardorf. Um, I think one of the best complete midfielders. He could do everything. Uh, so strong on the ball, vision of passing, could pop up with wonder goals, won the Champions League with three different clubs as well. But I think it would have been nice to see um, Seardorf in the Premiership and see him on match of the day every weekend, completely pulling strings and flooring boys like Dennis Wise and co. Um, yeah, so Clarence Seardorf. Brilliant. Lads, Inter Milan seem to have about uh, 52 strikers here. Um, R9 obviously <laughs> injured. How have they got so many top names? You know, Zamorano, Vieri, Lacoba, not even to mention R9. Robbie Keane makes an appearance at one stage. Who is bankrolling this? And why <laughs> does one team have to have so many wonderfully talented strikers that obviously will not fit in? I think... Desperation for the title. Yeah. Um, it had been so many years since Inter Milan had won a title. And then, you know, their best player was Ronaldo and he had the knee problems. Christian Vieri was was a brilliant bay for them. So he was always going to play. So then they're just waiting on Ronaldo to get fit to put them two together. Rakoba had been there a few years and, and Zamorano was getting a bit old. But the rest of them, Hakan Suker, Keane, Ventola, Callon... They didn't really hang about too long. I think. I think to me, desperation. I don't know who was bankrolling it. It is Italy we're talking about. Um, <laughs> but I think uh, desperation. They get the title, and let's get as much firepower in through the door as we possibly can. Great stuff. I'm looking forward to covering the final day of the Italian 0102 season later on. But we'll leave it there for the Euro match of the week. Thanks, Mush. Those against the Wolves. Welcome to this week's Balls Against the Wall quiz. This week's quiz is sponsored by the ball that Robbie Keane put past Oliver Kahn in the World Cup 2002 during Republic of Ireland's 1-1 draw with Germany. If you want to see this ball, it is no longer possible, as Oliver Kahn had it cremated. Oh, what a ball! Yes, welcome to the Balls Against the Wall quiz, the quiz where I pit Dan against Mosh to see who has the best football knowledge. From last week, Dan took an early lead. He is 1-0 up in this series. Can Mush bring it back this week? We will have to wait and see. But first of all, lads, I need your player buzzers. And this week, we're going for football boot buzzers. So, Dan, what is your player buzzer? Theodora. Oh, a fine boot worn by many a fine centre midfielder. Mush, what is your player buzzer? Puma! Oh, Puma. Lovely jubbly. Okay, so this week we are playing for the number two single in the charts that week, which was Wherever, Whenever by Shakira, one of Mush's all-time favourites. What a song. What a tune it is. Jared Piquet plays it every night before he goes to sleep. So we are privileged this week to have with us again the legend that is Ua Cantona keeping the scores for us. How are you doing, Eric? Nice to have you back this week. I am Cantona. Okay, great stuff, Eric. So Eric's taking the scores for us. You will know when the quiz is over when you hear this noise. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. Okay, lads, are we ready? Yeah. Question one. Which Juventus player finished top of Serie A scoring charts in 0102? Puma! Puma oh, it was Puma first, Mosh. Uh, David Trezeguet. Very good, it was David Trezeguet. Who won the Premier League that season? Theodora. Yes, Dan. Arsenal. Very good. Who finished top scorer in the Premier League? Puma! Theodora. Yes, Mosh. Uh, Thierry Henry. Yes, he did. Who sponsored Liverpool's jersey that year? Puma! Oh, I think it was Mush. Carlsberg? Yes, it was. <laughs> Who sponsored Leeds' jersey? Theodora! Puma! Yes, Dan. Strongbow. Yes, it was Strongbow. <laughs> Who won PFA Player of the Year? Theodora! Yes. Rude van Nistelrooy. He did. Which Newcastle striker won Young Player of the Year? Puma! Oh. Yes, Mush. 
Kieran Dyer? No. Dan? Oh, Craig Bellamy. Yes, it was Craig oh, Bellamy. Oh, well, jeez. Who did Brazil beat in that summer's World Cup final? Theodore. Puma! Yes, Dan. Germany. Yes. Which player won the Golden Glove in the tournament? Puma! Yes. Marsh. Oliver Kahn. Yes, very good. Who finished third at the World Cup 2002? Theodora. Puma! Oh, yes, Dan. Turkey. Yes, they did. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. <laughs> what, a, oh, what a quiz. We are out of time, lads. That was so tight. I actually couldn't keep up with the scores there, but I hope Ua Cantona could. Eric, what was the scores? Daniel, six, Conner, quatre. Okay, thanks, Eric. So Dan with another win there. He goes 2-0 up in the series, and he now has two singles to his name. Mosh, you need a big win next week. Keep those tunes coming. This match of the week... Bloody hell! Yes, welcome to the match of the week. It's all over at Upton Park, but don't worry, we've got Mush the Matchman standing by. It's an absolute cracker, I believe, Mush. What has happened at Upton Park? Oh, Steve. Eight goals, an absolute goal bonanza. I've run out of ink on me big pen, which I've had since my GCSC exams. The bubbles were blowing. They fairly got the beige and honey with today. Four goals in the first 14 half minutes. Steve Lobus, the Northern Ireland German-born, jumped on the end of a cross, which was fired in by Lamatt. He outjumped Tweedy Bird Silvestri and pumped his header past the suspect Frenchman, Fabian Bartes, who must have been smoking 10 B&H in the changing room. 1-0, hammer time. Didn't take United long to reply as a Paul Scholes pass, which could have sliced through a freshly baked wheat and bread. It found the golden boy, David Beckham, who whopped out the pitching wedge, and he lobbed Calamity Jane beautifully for 1-1. It only took West Ham three minutes to reply. United with an experimental and questionable left-hand side of Silvestri and Solskjaer were opened up as Michael Carrick fed Schimmickle who was on the wing, he whipped it in, and it was first-time finish from Canute! 2-1 to West Ham. Hammer time. Blanc and Janssen's arms were in the air. Yapstam was laughing in Rome in his armchair. As the bubbles were celebrating, United won a free kick, which Beckham, as he always does, delivers a pinpoint pass into the box, which was met by the ginger ninja, Nicky Butt, who awkwardly connected but it looked very Kung Fu-esque. Eric Cantona would have been proud of. 2-2 at halftime, a well-earned pie and pint of Bovril for the fans. Ten minutes into the second half, Ollie Gunner, the baby-faced assassin, chested down an awkward control into the West Ham box. He looked like he had lost the chance as Repke and Labon thought they had shadowed him outside, but he was able to guide a ball across the goal, which was met by Paul Scholes, who had the simple job of tapping in from eight yards out. For the first time in the game, United had led. United under Fergie, well, we know they're not masters of sitting back. So in the 64th minute, Beckham was at it again, this time whipping a cross in. Thomas Repka, who had a debatable game, uh, headed it off to Rude, who shot. David James thought he'd eventually made a save, but it was there for Solskjaer. Tap home the scraps and goal. 4-2, game over. Question mark? No, the Hamish! When Canuti's long giraffe legs outpaced the pinball wizard of Ronnie Johnson down the right wing, he crossed for Defoe to score. Blanc and Bartes were smoking and sleeping again! Ten minutes to get an equalizer for West Ham, but no, their bubble was well and truly popped as they conceded a pen with two to go, and David Beckham stepped up to smash it down the middle. David James sporting dreadlocks, which the Predator would have been proud of, had to pick the ball out of the net for the fifth and final time. Mark Astley's final whistle brought to an end of this eight-goal thriller, where David Beckham stole the show. Three gingers had scored in a game. Suspect French defending and David James sporting dreadlocks, which, again, question marks. United go one point clear at the top of the table. West Ham and Glen Roder stayed 10th. It's finished here. 
West Ham three, Manchester United five. Back to you in the studio, Steve. So a thrilling game there at Upton Park finished Manchester United five, West Ham United three. Dan, as usual, Manchester United not making it easy for themselves at Upton Park. Fergie liking to go gung-ho and uh, making it hard for themselves, but eventually getting the three points. Oh, absolutely. Um, Manchester United never got it easy at Upton Park. And it probably comes from the West Ham fans going way back to when Paul Ince left, controversially left West Ham for Manchester United. Always a bit of needle then from the fans and that probably rang through to the players where the West Ham players knew that they had to give it everything when Manchester United were in town and eight goals, absolutely thrilling game. Saturday Saturday afternoon, 3pm kickoff. you know, the, the fans in attendance got an absolute treat and as far as United that season in general, you know, leaky at the back so they're really Sir Alex probably had no choice but to tell his players to go gung-ho and pretty much just try and outscore the opposition that season because they had gaps in that back four. And as uh, much of the matchman touches, you know, questionable uh, selection decisions had to be made. You know, you're going all out Solskjaer on the left, a young Silvestri who was still, still developing at that time. Lauren Blanc is your main centre-back, so goals were going to be conceded. And I think all in all, back David Beckham was the man of the match. Couple of assists uh, and uh, one of the goals of the season, really. But it's a goal that people forget about. He lobs David James there off the right right hand angle. He's a good twenty five yards out. It's a brilliant goal. Um, and uh, I basically you score three, we score four or five, and that's how it was done. David Beckham always managed to raise his game when he played in London, whether it was against Tottenham, West Ham mm. or Chelsea. Do you think mm. the sort of badgering by the fans that he got about his, his personal life um, helped him? I think it, it 100% helped him because he is a strong, a strong human being mentally. He's mentally tough, which I don't think fans... Uh, realised probably you know seeing this young man getting sent off and you know oh let's start um, singing songs with his wife and children but you know Beckham just lapped it up really you know maybe it affected him the odd time off the pitch but certainly on the pitch didn't seem to bother him raised his game in London always remember him you know um, some some moments scoring against Chelsea and West Ham where he just sort of goes over to their fans and puts the old hand up to the ear and just lets them know, look, you're not having me today. I'm going to have you instead. And he was, a, he, he was a, as I say, mentally tough player and, and a brilliant player and very, very important to Manchester United and England at that time, which England fans seem to forget. Yes. You know, I, I don't understand this abusing players on Saturdays and cheering them on then when they score or do well for your country. Bizarre. It is really bizarre. Um. Oh, here he comes back now. Mush, the matchman, is back from the game. Mush, uh, have you recovered from that thriller? Oh, just about, Steve. Uh, I had to stop off at the shop there and get myself uh, a packet of Solvadine and uh, a new pen. as a completely worn out uh, me pen and me main, but an absolute beauty of a game. David Beckham stole his shoe to a brace and he was involved in every goal but questionable defending from uh, both teams but an absolute probably the game of the season so far absolute delight I love my job great stuff Mush well now that you've recovered have you got the rest of the scores from the weekend for us I do indeed Steve so the rest of the scores from that weekend in the 2001-2002 Premier League season Middlesbrough 1 Liverpool 2. Heskian race, though, with the goals for Liverpool. Gareth Southgate with the goal for Berra. Chelsea 4. Sunderland 0. William Gallus with a goal. He was assisted by Desai. And goals from Idaka Johnson, Forsell, and Dalla Bona. Everton 2. Fulham 1. David Unsworth with a goal after one minute. And Drunken Duncan. Ferguson with the other. Fulham's goal was scored by Steve Malbronk, which was set up by Big Barry Hales. Tommy Gravison, a.k.a. Ross Kemp on Gangs, was sent off. Tottenham Hotspur, nil. Charlton, one. Chris Powell with the winner. Newcastle, two. Ipswich, two. Laurent Robert and Alan Shearer with the goals for um, the Geordies, while Ipswich, it was a brace for Marcus Bent. He was set up by a brace from Marcus Stewart. Southampton 2, Leicester 2. 
This was a game of braces as Marion Pahars bagged a brace and so did Brian Dean. Um, a set of braces there. Stone Cold Steve Austin would have been proud of. Leeds United 3, Blackburn Rovers 1, Robbie Fowler and Harry Kuhl with the goals and Matt Jansen with Rovers' goal. And finally, Aston Villa 1, Arsenal 2. Adu and Perez with Arsenal's goal after great work by Freddie Lundberg. And Villa's goal was scored by Dion under the hammer, Dublin. That concludes the scores for this weekend in the Premier League season. Big Brucey's bedtime bath. Nice and warm, full of suds, a scented candle, a rubber duck. In the bath, Brucey don't give a dreams of passes to be. Dreams of passes to be. Okay, Dan. I'm ready. I've got the story ready. Can you just make sure that Brucey's nice and comfortable? Oh, how are you doing, Brucey? You're nice and warm in the bath. Is the water warm enough for you? Is it nice and hot? Have you got enough redox in there? I can't see through the bubbles, but have you got your rubber ducky as well? I don't want to leave you without it. I remember, nice long bath and straight to bed. You're meeting Paul Parker for breakfast tomorrow morning. Okay, Brucey, I'll leave you to it. Enjoy. Okay, Steve, so this week's story comes from your good friend, Andrew Cole's autobiography, and it's called Fast Forward. Funnily enough, it was an incident with Yorkie that heightened things and probably hastened my departure from Blackburn. It seemed Graham Souness was wary of me and Dwight. We played well for him, continued to score goals for him, but as time passed and relationships broke down, he became more cutting. He was always trying to take me down a peg or two. That didn't stop. One day in training, the same old issues. He was playing in a game with us, but he left one right on Yorkie. It was a naughty challenge. Like those towards the end of his playing days. Yorkie had a very deep gash on his shin. He rolled up his sock, and there was the Dwight smile. Okay. It's like that, is it? He said. Let's play. So we played, and then it happened. There are times in games when you get the perfect scenario. The ball sits up and it's in just the right place, the right place to be won, but also the right place to half do someone. The ball was in that place between player and manager and Dwight absolutely launched Graham Souness. I mean, launched him. It was like a cartoon with Graham going up and up before crash. He hit the ground with a thump and he lost it. The session was over. Everyone get in. Dwight was pleading innocence. That Dwight York smile still on his face. I was in the shower when I heard a commotion and someone ran in, saying Dwight had lost it. I'd never known him to lose his temper, but apparently this argument had continued in front of the chief executive, John Williams, until Dwight had left. John knew things were getting out of hand. Dwight and Graham were one thing, but with the continued bad blood between me and the manager, and the atmosphere around the place, something had to give. It was me or Graham. And I understood it had to be me. Okay, Brucey, did you enjoy that? Great stuff. Good night, Brucey. Sleep tight. And don't let Gary Pallister bait. So now it's a part of the show where we add another player to our Simpsons lookalike 11. Our first pick was Dan's pick, and that was Giles Grimondie, who looked like Jacques the Bowler from The Simpsons. And this week, it is my pick. And there's a bit of creative license going on here, lads. Now, this player did look like this character, but in recent years, this player has now got a shaved head and is a little bit older. But I want you to cast your mind back to maybe 04, 05 to about 2009, 2010. This player had lovely long black hair and a cheeky little goatee and reminds me a lot of Dr. Nick Riviera. And that is Manchester City's David Silva. 
Very good. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. Can you see it? Um, I can. Yeah. Now we might need to to tweak the formation from a four four two into a four three three to accommodate Silva. Uh, but uh -huh. I think he's the perfect foil for Giles Grimondi in the middle. Mm. And mm. I also think, quite like Dr. Nick Riviera, you wouldn't mind being on an operating table if David Sil Silva was looking after you. Oh, not at all. I would complete, uh, completely um, trust David Silva, especially when he gives that nice greeting to everybody, you know? He's, uh... <laughs> hey, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we've got Jock the Bowler. And Dr. Nick Riviera in the middle of the park so far. Depending on the rest of the picks, we'll have to might, might tweak the formation. But Mush, your pick next week. Looking forward to that. So that's the end of today's pod, listener. But please join us next week because we've got a special edition issue of the pod where we will be looking back at one of our favourite tournaments of all time. It's a tournament that we loved when we were growing up. It was all on the telly. Dan, what have we got coming up? Oh, next week, Stephen, we will be reviewing the World Cup in France 1998. An unbelievable competition with some of with the world's greatest players uh, in attendance. We have Scotland and England representing the home nations. We have Arnhem's Brazil. We have Zidane's France. We have uh, the Loudrops going with Denmark. We have the Super Eagles of Nigeria led by Keanu and Finiti George. We have Davor Sukar's Croatia. Loads to discuss around France 98. Really, really looking forward to um, reviewing some of those games. We have some goal and goal winners. We have some penalty shootouts. We have some pain. And we have our overall champions as well. A fantastic competition. A World Cup that is very much in the centre of my memory and I'm sure your own and Mush's along with our listeners. So, Really looking forward to reviewing France 98. We've also got our quiz of the week still, and it's going to be a World Cup 98 special. Brucey will be back splashing in his bath, and Mush the Matchman will be at one of his favourite games of France 98. Join us for that. So it's good night from me, and it's good night from Dan. Say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. And it's good night from Mush the Matchman. Say good night, Mush. Good night, Mush. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.